you're listening to the True Life Church podcast. To learn more about True Life Church, including our service times in Melbourne, Florida, join us online at truelifemelbourne.com or find us on Facebook. Today's message comes from lead pastor Joshua Smith. to continue in our series. We're in Nehemiah. We have this week and one more week left. Uh, one more week. We're going to close out our series in Nehemiah next Sunday, and uh, at least one person is disappointed. <laughs> the rest of y'all will be super excited for where we're going. I hope we're going into a 13-week series in the book of Acts, and we're going to walk through the book of Acts. Um, following that, at least tentatively right now, is planned then a four-week series in Psalm 34. And then uh, a nine-week series as we get closer to December, um, which is because it's already that. If you're tracking the math with me, that's where we're at, about the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. For today, however, we are still in the Old Testament. And I want to begin this morning uh, with kind of picking up with our main points from last Sunday. And we re- as we recap, the, the Israelites found themselves as they went through their history um, that they were presumptuous ahead of God, or trying to be impatient. Uh, they were disobedient and not obeying um, what God had told them to do. Uh, they were worshiping other idols, uh, again, the golden calf, and then throughout Israel's history, so many um, leaders and poor decisions to worship Baal and Gog and Magog and a whole bunch of other uh, idols that you know, kind of goes against the whole Ten Commandments thing. You shall not make idols or worship any other gods before me, says the Lord. And they were unlawful. They broke the law. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 33 said, You have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. And is not that the truth for us this morning as we look back on the history of our lives I also saw a video this past week where, uh, you know, there's those people who do the interviews on the street, just random people, you know, in different cities, and and they were asking uh, the young adults of the next generation, when was the United States formed? Not a single one of them got it right. Who is the president right now? Some did not know. Who is the president before that? None knew. Um, Who fought in the Civil War? I mean, everything, just had no clue. Uh, one of those was wearing a graduate outfit. He just presumably graduated high school and did not know that our nation was founded in 1776 or that the North fought the South um, or that there was a civil war or that there were 50 states in our union. These are the product of what's coming out. And so it's good to know our history. It's good to know where we've come from. Um, and it's good to know your personal history as you look back on the providence uh, and sovereignty of God. And for that, we can hopefully just surmise the same, that God has dealt faithfully with us, and we have acted wickedly. No matter how good you may feel or think you are, that is the truth. Paul writes that who is good? No, not one. Not one of us is righteous. Also recapping last, last week that when left by themselves, people will create and then worship idols. When left to your own devices, you will find something to worship. Also that weak leadership is dangerous. And that was encouragement and a challenge to us in our own homes to lead our families well. And we're going to be picking up with that 
this morning. Finally, from the story of Mark chapter 8, where Jesus healed a blind man and stages. His sight got somewhat better and Jesus laid hands on him again and then his sight fully returned. How once our eyes have been opened, we should not go back to where we've come from. Jesus told him to not go back to his home through the village And once our eyes have been opened to who God is and what his word says we should do, we should not depart from it. And that is where we're going to pick up in the book of Nehemiah chapter 10 this morning. So I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 28 through 39. And they said all these things and recapped the history so that by the time we pick up in today's passage, they are renewing and making a new covenant, a curse and an oath that we will read about with the Lord. It says in verse 28, The rest of the people, to all the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give a yearly, a third, a part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it to the house of our God according to our Father's houses, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of of the Lord, and also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests and who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes, the tithe of the tithes. And if you notice, that's what our church does also. The tithe of the tithe of the house of our God to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. Finally... We will not neglect the house of our God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Pray that you would reveal to each one of us what you'd have us know this morning. Stir our hearts towards repentance and to action. 
that we would be not hearers of the word, but also doers. Humble us this morning, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Firstly, I want to read through a little bit of this scripture and make sure we all understand it. Firstly, all the people were separated from the people of the land. We read that in verses 28 through 29. And they were separated from the people of around the surrounding tribes. Well, why? Because the surrounding tribes did not worship God. So they separated themselves in order to make this curse and the oath. And after all this we've been reading in Nehemiah, by this point they have heard the law, which is all the first five books, the Torah of our Old Testament. They have heard it many, many, many times for days and days they have been reading this and come to understand it. So by this point, again, we read that all who have knowledge and understanding, in verse 28, there's not a, by this point, no one is left out of understanding or knowing what the scriptures have said and what they were supposed to do. So they're going to make this covenant a curse and an oath, obligating themselves to the service of the Lord and what they should do. The law has laid out what they should do, and they have understood by this point that they have been disobedient or rebellious and not doing those things. They say, well, now we know. Now we know better, and so we will do better. They were not to intermarry with the world also. In other words, biological evangelism. You know, I, I can't hear tell you how many times, you know, we, we have a Christ follower, marry a non-Christ follower. And it's a difficult road ahead. One of my teachers growing up uh, in music at a, at a high school level, um, very nice teacher, uh, but she was Christ follower and she married a Jewish man. And the daughter naturally grew up confused. So we should not intermarry with the world. Here they go on to not disrespect the Sabbath by selling goods or any products or to do business and every seventh year to forego the crops. This is actually also helpful for the soil. They've discovered that agriculturally, is that when you give the land a break, then the crops do better. So for everything, there is a reason. Yearly financial support of the temple and its priests and its offerings. They were going to give a tithe of everything that they produced and bring it, all fruit, all grain, all wine, all oil, anything that they came up with, they would give a tithe, a tenth percent, and the first fruits, not the last fruits. In other words, as soon as the paycheck came in, they would give to the temple, not wait till the end of the month and give what was left. This is what Cain and Abel did in Genesis, which is why God looked favorably upon Abel's offering and disfavorably upon Cain's. Cain brought what was last or least and left over and what was not required. Abel brought what was first, first fruits, and what was required. So a good lesson for us in that also. You may be confused in, here in verse 36 and 37 how they even brought the firstfruits and their firstborn sons. Now we know that our God, as then as now, was not a God of child sacrifice. So what does that mean? Well, it means that they should have been sacrificed. The firstborn son, they give the firstborn of everything that was produced. So if I was a man, I would... Take, I'm a, I am a man, I am a man, all right, so 
last time, last time I checked, you know. So if I was a man back then, I would take Landon, my firstborn son, and I would have taken him to the temple, and instead of sacrificing him and to the history of Abram and Abraham where God provided a ram in the thicket instead of sacrificing Isaac, I would have brought Landon to the temple, and instead of sacrificing Landon, I would have sacrificed a lamb. And my son would have known from a very young age that he was covered by the blood of the Lamb. Old Testament and New joined together. It's a pretty cool little note. Also, a little fun fact, haven't done one of those in a while. Um, If a goat ever gave birth to twins, one of those twins, um, the healthier, pure one, would be sacrificed as an offering. And the other goat would have everyone come together and lay their sins. They would proclaim their sins on the goat. This was their atonement, and they would send the goat out into the wilderness. This was called the scapegoat. If you ever wonder where that title comes from, it's biblical. Anyway, moving on. Now you can, if you get nothing else out of this morning, you can tell your friends, you know where scapegoat comes from? Because I do. So they would bring all the first fruits, even their sons, and come be atoned by the blood of the lamb, and if you want to read that to make sure I'm not making that up, that's in Exodus chapter 13, verse 30. Finally, this passage concludes with arguably the most important statement for us this morning out of this passage. And it says this, We will not neglect the house of our God. Say that with me. We will not neglect the house of our God. Humankind, we are great at bargaining. We like to barter, we like to trade, we like to come up with excuses, and we are great bargainers. Like, I don't really do bargaining. You know, I go into you know, a restaurant, and that's the price on the menu, so I pay the price on the menu. I'm talking about choices you actually have consequences with. In other words, all the way back to Genesis, we see Adam and Eve in the garden, in their minds, bargaining. On one hand, the fruit they should not eat of. On the other hand, the temptation for the knowledge of good and evil. Hmm, what should I do? Bargaining. You may find a practical use of bargaining uh, with yourself in the morning. Your alarm goes off. There's a wonderful six-letter word called snooze. So you hit it. Nine minutes later on your iPhone, the alarm goes off again. And if you're lucky, you can hit snooze again. And what you're doing in the recesses of your subconscious is bargaining. I set my alarm for 5.30 a.m., but I know deep down inside, I really don't have to get up till 6. So you're bargaining every time you hit snooze. What can I get away with within reason? Every time you speed on the highway, is there a cop around? Not that I see. What's the speed limit? 40. 45 it is. So you're bargaining with what you can think you can get away with in the margin and in the gray area. Bargaining leads us to a corrupt mentality and a distorted theology that says, I am a good person. I do good things. And value ourselves very highly when we shouldn't. If you are speeding on the highway and the speed limit says 70 and you go 79 and no one catches you, 
have you broken the law? Yes. If you are going 71 on I-95 and the cop pulls you over, have you broken the law? Yes, because the speed limit sign clearly says 70. See, at some point in time, someone thought it was wise to not have humans go 105 miles an hour down the interstate in a plastic car with some metal and software. You have broken the law. It doesn't matter if you like to, to fight it, to come up with an excuse and bargain. Well, I'm late. Well, I'm, I'm running behind. Well, I'm trying to go here. Well, I didn't plan accordingly. And there is no excuse that should technically be able to save you from being a lawbreaker. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Well, friends, what is sin? Is it what you say is wrong? What is sin? Sin is lawlessness. Breaking the law. Whose law? God's law. Where do we find God's law? Correct, Aiden, in the Bible. Hey, at least he answered. You're laughing. He was quickest on the draw, all right? We find God's law in namely the Ten Commandments. And I will recap these in case we need reminding. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the setting of the Lord. Number two, you shall not make idols. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And these first four are about loving the Lord. And out of that overflow the next six. Number five, honor your father and mother. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Number ten, you shall not covet. And these are good laws. And they are also meant to keep us safe. We say, but Jesus, right? Jesus came along, New Testament, a couple of Gospels later, and we, we don't have to hold to this anymore. Right? Question mark. You see, there's a growing Christian culture that believes such. And they're mistaken. Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40 gives us an account, but I'm going to talk about the exact same passage in Mark. Mark gives us a little bit more detail than Matthew does in what's going on here. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. One of the scribes came up and heard them, the Pharisees, disputing with one another, because Jesus had silenced them in the previous paragraph from their queries. And seeing that he answered them well, asked them, Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? In other words, I'm going to go over these ten commandments that, uh, that we just read over, and I'm going to trap them here by saying that, uh, that one is more important. Neither way will get him. And Jesus answered, if you're following along with me, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now pause very quickly. Is that what commandment number one says? 
No, not verbatim. What Jesus is doing here, showing his absolute authority over Old Testament texts and that he is the Son of God, is able to take Scripture and reveal what's going on. He was considered wise even as a 12-year-old boy teaching in the temples, and here he is teaching yet again. And he takes the first four commandments, and he lays it out for us just a little bit differently. You cannot break commandments one, two, three, or 4 if you are loving the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Also, you cannot break commandments 5 through 10. If you do, the second is this. In verse 31, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He goes on, there is no other commandment greater than these. And here, he encapsulates all ten into two statements. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, the Lord, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all burnt, all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. There's hope for you yet, Pharisee. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now, going back to verse 29, what does Jesus' answer begin with? What words, if you're following along? The most important is. We're living in a day and age where our world and even Christian culture likes to focus on the second. Just loving your neighbor. Just love your neighbor. Love and affirm your neighbor. Love and affirm your neighbor and their sins and their lifestyle and their choices. Love, just love your neighbor. And they skip over the most important. Jesus is very specific with this. It's not that the second is not important. He only listed two. But there is a hierarchy. And the most important is, read with me, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Friends, I encourage you to have this as one of your memory verses this week if you need one. Jesus does not back down on labeling what is the most important commandment. In ministry for the last... Oh, what, 17, 18 years now? I, uh, I've been exposed to some interesting conversations and questions in the different areas of ministry that I've served, both here in the large churches in Atlanta and otherwise in the state of Florida. And these questions often come along kind of privately and curiously, asking things like, do I really have to give? Do I really need to tithe? Isn't tithing Old Testament stuff? Do I have to come every Sunday? If I don't have much money, can I just give my time? And if I don't have a lot of time, can I just give more money? Balances out, right? Because, you know, time is money, right? In Atlanta... 
I was at a very large church there with 5,000 people on a six-point-something million-dollar budget in a very affluent area of Atlanta called Buckhead. We had a lot of people with a lot of money who chose to give no time. Likewise, I've been in what we might label poor churches where people had time but not a lot of money. And we hear people say, well, I'm on fixed income, to which I respond, so am I. It doesn't go up next month. Stays the same. As does yours. And what we're doing is we're bargaining. We're bargaining, just as in Adam and Eve in the garden, once again saying, what can I get away with? Is there not a cop on the highway of spiritual life right now? And can I push it just a bit to get where I want to go when I want to get there? Do I want more money in my savings account? Ah, give a little bit less. I'm just busier this week, so I won't go to small group, life group, church to serve. And we're bargaining to see what we can get away with. Jesus makes it clear here and in a passage we will read in a few minutes that the Old Testament is not old-fashioned. It's not out of date. It's not irrelevant. And we can still, and are called to still, live our lives in a godly way and honor these commandments. Jesus says, you are my friend if you do what I have commanded you to do. You'll come to that soon. So here in Nehemiah, they had set aside their tithes and offerings, right? They had given their first fruits, anything that was stuff, the wood offering, the showbread, goats and sheep or whatever it was, anything that was stuff, they have offered to the Lord. And you might say, well, that's good enough. But it wasn't, because they were still called to honor the Sabbath. And they set aside the Sabbath day, an entire day, for nothing but worship, confession, praise, reading the law, resting from their work, no buying or selling, and remembering what God had done and is doing for them. Set aside a whole day to honor the Sabbath, and be in the presence of the Lord, and take their gifts to the temple. Keep that thought for a minute and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. Paul is writing here the first of two letters that we have, epistles to the church in Corinth. And here in chapter 6, beginning in verse 12 through 20, we're going to read Paul taking some phrases of the day and explaining them a little bit more detailed. He said, all things are lawful for me. I can do anything I want, anything within the realm of the law. All things are lawful. I'm just going to abide by the law. But not all things are helpful. In other words, it is technically lawful for you to go and consume alcohol by the age of 21. I would also argue that within maybe a little bit or too much of that, that is not helpful, especially to drive. All right? So it's lawful, not helpful. All things are lawful for me, 
but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised up, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as is written, the, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined with, to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And here we come to the meat of this passage for us today. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your body is a temple. A temple to who? The Lord. For what? For His glorification. Now, there's no more need after Jesus for burnt offerings, for killing animals or sheep or goats or pilgrimages to Jerusalem, or not even to remember the feasts by going there. That's part of what Jesus came to do. You can debate this sometimes, but it's very clear for us in Acts chapter 15, the elders of the church in Jerusalem with Paul, and you don't have to turn there, but they decided we as Gentiles, and that's who we were, we were not Jewish before we became Christ followers, at least I believe so, you, that might be your road, in which case I would argue that you have a different route laid out for you to be obedient. But for us who are Gentiles, not Jewish, grafted into the tree, we've talked about this a few weeks ago of Israel, that in Acts 15 they were not expected to keep the full law of Moses. And that's good, because that would mean we would have 613 mitzvot, 613 laws we would have to keep. Ceremonial laws, moral laws, social laws, food laws, purity laws, feasts outlining sacrifices and offering, instructions for the priesthood and the tabernacle. Whew! I am so glad that those 613 laws we don't have to hold to. But those do not negate the ten. God's laws. Those were the law of Moses. And there's even in the Hebrew a very big distinction between the two. That these ten are not up for debate. How could they be when Jesus summed them all up? And then in Matthew chapter 5 verse 17. I will turn there. Matthew chapter 5. And you're welcome to turn there with me. For three or four verses. Matthew chapter 5. 17 through 20. Jesus is speaking on the sermon on the mount. And he says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to nullify it. To make it obsolete. In fact, he goes on the opposite. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So that they would be even clearer for you now. And we would understand them and their completion. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments 
and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I was talking with Jeremy, a friend of mine who's running our lights for us this morning. I was talking with him this morning. He was telling me a story which I have now acquired without his permission, so I hope it's okay. And uh, he and his family went out for a day of sun and fun yesterday. Now, Jeremy he said he does not burn in the sun too easily, so sunscreen is second thought for him. It's a different matter entirely for some of his kids who went out without sunscreen and are now promptly lobsters. He said they put on sunscreen about 15 to 30 minutes before they were done outside, and by then the damage had been done, they were burned. Friends, I don't want us to wait to put on sunscreen in our spiritual life. If we know what we should do today, then we should do it today. You were hopefully passed a post-it note just a bit ago, and I'd like to encourage you to take it out. We're about to go into a pop quiz where you have to name every 17th verse of the last chapter of Nehemiah. I'm totally kidding. No, what you're going to do is you're going to write down some numbers here, and they're going to be specific to you. And the numbers that you're going to write down... I'm going to walk through some statistics to lead us to a point this morning. The first number I want you to write down this morning is 168. If you want to know the significance of that number, that is the number of hours that you and I have in every week. 24 hours a day, you can do the math, times 7. 12 to 15 hours on average on planet Earth we have of daylight. 12 to 15 hours of daylight. At the equator, it's actually 12 all the time. Sun never sets, though, at the North Pole. And if you lived in Iceland in a few weeks on the summer solstice on June 21st, the sun would set after midnight and rise again before 3 a.m. It's a lot of daylight. Inversely, even in London, uh, December solstice, they have 17 hours of darkness in London. That's pretty dark here, eh, chap? I know. Lots of darkness. So on average, 12 to 15 hours of daylight. And again, we're going to reflect on what the Sabbath is. A Sabbath is laid out for us in Scripture. Jesus builds and not nullifies it. He builds to this. Again, he's not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And a Sabbath is a day to keep for the Lord, right? Any argument with that? A Sabbath is a day for His worship, yes. A day for prayer, Yes, a day for confession. We've read about that even in the book of Nehemiah. A day for sacrifice. We are, again, not offering up burnt wood offerings or sheep or goats or anything like that. But what we are called to sacrifice is what? The self. Romans tells us this. This is our spiritual act of worship, the sacrificing of our bodies for the glory of God. And what we find out is that, if you've never thought about it this way, the Sabbath is a tithe of time. 
Now, they were required to give other things for the wood and grain and sheep and burnt offerings and doves and all other kind of stuff. And not an exemption from and the tithe of time by setting apart a day for nothing but the Lord. So we see here, based on the average even daylight hours, you can give a tithe of time. Here we go into some fun statistics. Most of these are quickly Googleable, and I was able to confirm it with multiple different sources. Some, in a few moments, get more specific and harder to find, so I will list the sources I acquired them. The average human sleeps 8.5 hours a day. The average human sleeps 8.5 hours a day, 10 hours on weekends, and 10 hours a day if you're under the age of 15. The result of that, again, we're going to do some math, and this is where you have to do some math. I encourage you to think about how many hours you sleep and multiply that times 7. And what we're going to do is keep a running total, subtracting eventually that from 180. Track with me. All right. You need more sleep the younger you are. And then when you are older, you still need more sleep, but no one will let you get it. The average American, the average human on planet Earth sleeps 8.5 hours a day. So if you need a rough average, that's what you can work with. Again, do the math on your post-it note according to what you are sleeping. You may find out you're just lazy. Average time working per day is 7.5 hours. That's the average time that someone, when they go to work or sit at their laptop in their home office in their pajamas with a sport coat, will work 7.5 hours a day. And you can do the math. If you work on average five days a week, you may work six, so do the math for you. But that will work out to about 38 hours a week. Here's where things get fun. The average time on social media per day per person is 147 minutes a day and growing yearly. If you need the math for the minutes, that's 2.5 hours a day the average American spends on social media. You're like, well, that's surely not me, until your phone tells you the weekly screen time usage. You're like, oh, that's me. (laughs) You can do the math. If you spend the average of 2.5 hours a day on social media, you end up with 18 hours a week or thereabouts just on Facebook. What a horrible waste of time. Separately from social media, the average time you will spend on your mobile phone is 4.5 to 5.4 hours a day. This includes text messaging, phone calls, checking emails, and using apps separately from social media time. So if you are one of those mobile phone hogs, you may find yourself at 6 hours a day on your phone. Don't admit to it, just log it down, put it down on your post-it note. And if you are in the average, you will come up with about 28 hours a week on the phone. The average American spends 8.2 hours driving a week, just going from place to place, soccer practices, piano lessons, work, back home from work, back to work again because you forgot something, and then back home again to school and all the other places you go. The average American spends 8.2 hours a week. So do some math and you will find that, well, whatever you drive a day, figure it out. The average time playing video games, if you prefer video games, is more than two hours a day. 
So if video games is your outlet, you may find yourself with near 15 hours plus a week on League of Legends, World of Warcraft, or if anyone still plays Halo. If you like working out and being fit, the average American works out for seven hours a week there in the gym. And if you are, it shows. Good job. For the rest of us, you may not have a total for that one, so just skip it. Now here's where things start to get a little bit more personal. Kids, sports, and hobbies. Not you, the ones you're taking your kids to. Take up between 6 and 24 hours every week, depending on if they're at away games, daily practices, multiple sports or activities. So factor that into your time. I have no idea what that looks like for you, but there is a time for that. 6 to 24 hours a week the average American spends. The average time cleaning, this is average, keep in mind, the average time cleaning or doing household chores is one to two hours a day. If you're like me, I get them all done on Saturday. But it's about 10 hours. Yard work stinks, especially when it's hot. So factor daily cleaning and chores. The average American male spends 17 hours a day on the toilet. I'm just making sure people are paying attention, right? You may need to fa- you may be that person that needs to factor in bathroom time. All right? I'll just leave that there for you. Quietly put it down on the post-it note if that's you. The average time on streaming media. This is Netflix, Disney Plus, and other places. The average Netflix user, of which there are 220 million of you, I won't presume that there aren't any in this room. The average Netflix user spends an average of 3.2 hours a day watching shows on Netflix. If you have Disney Plus, of which there are 120 million and growing users, the average Disney Plus user spends 31 hours a week on that streaming service. If you like the streaming services, please put that down. The Pew Research Center in 2013 found that the average American's TV watching versus going to church ratio is 102 to 1. The average American, not Christian, the average American churchgoer, someone who actually goes, will watch 102 hours of television for every one hour they are in church. The Evangelical Alliance study in 2014 shared that only 31% of Christians born after 1960 say they read their Bibles daily. Most of this room is born after 1960. The average time, if someone does read their Bible of that 31%, the average time is 10 to 20 minutes. Despite 88% surveyed, saying that is they believe it was important to read the Bible daily. So 88% think it's a good idea. Only 31% do it, and when they do, maybe it's 10 minutes. Almost 20% of American Christians do not, do not have a fixed pattern of prayer, but when the chance arises, is the most common response. when the chance arises, and higher for those born after 1980. 
87% surveyed of this 1,500 people from the Evangelical Alliance study of 2014, 87% said that a Christian needs to spend time alone with God daily, agreeing that without that, their faith would suffer. Yet only 42%, half of that, responded that they find it difficult to find regular and disciplined time. According to a LifeWay research study in January of 2020, just on the precipice of the pandemic before things really got interesting, of which there is no relevant or accurate data since then, because things have gone kaflups. America is no longer a majority church-going nation. Only 45% of Americans of all religious beliefs go to worship, church, synagogue, temple, or anywhere else. 65% of Protestant churchgoers say they can walk with God without the need of other believers. 65% say they don't need nobody else. Only 32% of churchgoers read their Bible daily. I'll say that again. Only 32% of churchgoers read their Bible daily. 27% a few times a week. You know what the highest response was? Never. The average time at church for an American churchgoer per week, if we're tracking this down, is 40 minutes. That's because nationally the average is 1.4 times a month. Now if you've done the math... Subtracting all of those different numbers from 180, you should end up with zero, right? Inserting time for spiritual growth and development. My guess is that like I did when I went through this math, you do not arrive at zero. You come up with some other number, 9, 17, 14, 22. How did you get that? If you have leftover hours, you didn't do the math correctly. See, you have used every hour of your last week. You're here. What you haven't done is correctly keep track or apportion the time appropriately and realize how important every hour is. And what we find through these studies is that between average church attendance and a regular Bible reading and prayer, the average American Christian today gives one hour to God per week. That is not a tithe, is it? That's less than 1%. The average American Christian, combined with inactive and irregular church-going activities, and irregular, if little, Bible reading and prayer daily, give God one hour a week out of 180. Friends, hopefully we would agree today that that is not keeping the Sabbath, is it? We like to bargain with ourselves and say, I keep the Sabbath. I went to church for an hour and a half. I was disgruntled when we went ten minutes over. And we feel good about ourselves. We are not keeping the Sabbath. We can't wait till it's over. To go to, of all places, Dustin's Barbecue. Our hope should be set higher. We are not giving a whole day to God. 
Even if we split it up throughout our week, where would it be seen? We have the ease and privilege, as Lance mentioned earlier, of running into the very throne room of God whenever we choose. We just don't choose to. We have the privilege of being the temple of the living God, our bodies, the dwelling place of the Spirit of God in us, and we, as in the Israelites here in the end of our passage in Nehemiah, we are neglecting the house of our God. Christians are supposed to be a people set apart in the world, but not of it. A holy nation, a royal priesthood, disciplined in our faith, consistent in our prayer. Loving the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength. Yet the average American Christian's devotion to God makes up less than 1% of their life. And we wonder why our Christian nation is where it is. How can we be set apart and separated from the world when we 99% of the time are doing exactly what they are doing, exactly how they are doing it? How can we be separated when 99% of us is devoted to something else other than the Lord? And I realize I'm speaking to the choir Because surely that's not us at True Life Church. Surely that's true for everyone else. Everywhere else. And we find ourselves bargaining yet again. Imagine with me, if you will, if Christians kept the Sabbath. And in addition to everything else, gave their tithe of time throughout the week or on Sundays? What would it look like if our Christ-following nation gave between 12 and 18 hours a week per person, per church, per city, per town, per county, per state? Do you think our world would look different? If they were growing in spiritual development and prayer, if they were reading the Word of God daily, if they were coming to the throne room of God with worship and praise and sacrifice and submission, being obedient to what He has called us to do, and loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength instead of giving Him some, little or none. Friends, I hope you are actually encouraged as I am today. You might feel discouraged up until this point. You might look at your post-it note and say, that is a number I am not happy with. To which I would answer, hooray, let's fix it together. Because I believe that this is what God is calling our church to be. A church, if need be, separated from other churches. And how they go about their daily activities. A church separated from other people in the world who will find it weird and mock you when you say no to streaming services taking your kids to another sports practice every week or canceling vacation to come back on a Sunday to be in the presence of God. Well, that's weird. We respond, it should be. Because 99% of everybody is doing something else. This is what we should be building. This is what we are called to build. A body of Christ... That does not toss out the Old Testament. It holds to it. Because of what Jesus has said. Not to abolish. 
but to fulfill. To be obedient in our time and our talents and our treasure. In Exodus chapter 34, I want to recap just a little bit. The Lord has revealed to Moses that he will show him himself. And because no one can be in the presence and look upon the Lord and live, God says that he will shield Moses with his hand in the crevice of a rock as he passes by. And in verse 10 of chapter 34, and before that, the Lord makes the new covenants because remember last week Moses has smashed the first set upon the golden on the ground with a golden calf. And so the Lord writes new commandments, same commandments, new tablets in his own hand. And in verse 10 of chapter 34, he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as has not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. The Israelite people have set up, been set apart, been separated, which is why we still read about them today. The Lord chose to reveal himself through the descendants of Abraham. Could have been through the descendants of, uh, I don't know, Melchizedek. Could have been through the descendants of Babylon. But no, God chose to reveal himself through the descendants and the peoples of Israel to make them a holy nation. So that's, if you're wondering, like, why is Israel? Okay, well, that's Israel. I'm going to fast forward just a little bit into chapter 34, again now, verse 29 through 35. And here now comes God showing himself to Moses. And when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. He was unaware. By his knowledge, he looked the same. He's just the same dude coming down the mountain. And Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone. He is literally glowing. Radioactive, just emitting light, and who knows what color it was, but he's glowing. The skin of his face shone. Maybe he was born with it, maybe it was Maybelline, or maybe it was God. And they were afraid to come near him. And Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders in the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with him. And afterward, all the people of Israel came near. And he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. It's creeping everybody else out. And from this day on, until he dies, Moses glowed. He was radiant. His skin shown all the time. And he would wear a veil the whole time and take it off when he went into the tabernacle, the tent place of meeting, to meet with the Lord. Take off the veil, speak with God, come back out, veil back on. Because people are like, weird. So that's what we read about in verse 34 and 35. Moses spent time with God and as a result looked different than everyone else. First Peter chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, says this, just a few verses. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Gentiles, the world living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless, there it is again, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They're going to make fun of you. Just come have a beer with me, man. Just come on. Just have a beer. Just have a beer. No, I'm good. Just have a beer. Just have a beer. No, I'm good. Well, you don't like beer? What are you, some Christ? Come on, let's go out. Everybody's going out. 
No, I don't like where you're going. Ah! Just some people taking their clothes off. Everything's fine. Nope, not going to go. What are you, lame? Sure. I'm going to malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit to be the temple of God, the way God does. You will be mocked by the world, maybe even by other Christ followers, for doing what God has told you to do, for following his word, for believing in Jesus, for living in step with the spirit, for keeping the Sabbath, for loving your enemies for forgiving and asking forgiveness, for praying without ceasing and from refraining from otherworldly things. We are called to be separated. Ephesians chapter 4, a few pages back, Paul writes, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17 through 5, and I want to read it so that you hear a decent chunk of what Paul is writing. I will not leave anything out. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. He writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, as the world does in the futility of their minds. They think they've got it all figured out, but they don't. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them through the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him, you shouldn't be living that way. Assuming you were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, now that we know that therefore is therefore, verse 25, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You cannot do this Christ-falling walk alone. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed on the day of redemption. Oh, so it's hard to be a Christ follower. <laughs> Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as in God, in Christ, forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Verse 3 of chapter 5 now, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Why? Because it goes against the Ten Commandments. Not because Paul came up with it. It's proper among the saints, that there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joke, joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. 
Therefore, do not become partners with him. We need to be separated. Do not become partners with him. For at one time you were darkness. Hopefully we know that. But now you are light in the Lord. And we should know that also. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part, separated, in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And underline this next verse in reference to the post-it notes we talked about earlier. Making the best use of the time. You have hours you misused, misappropriated, or didn't even know where they went up. You ended up with a number that wasn't zero. Where did the time go? You don't even know. Make the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your mouth, with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence, for Christ. Closing out now, back in Nehemiah, I just want to read that last line again. Closing out their curse and an oath, the people of Israel, and this will be important for us as we close out this series next week. Spoiler alert, they break their covenant. They've gone through all of this and reading and understanding the law and they're, and they're reading and they're making all of this again and it's very formal and it sounds very good for a time. But at this moment in time, they have a moment of repentance and they say, we will not neglect the house of our God. Friends, my challenge to every single one of us this morning is that we have done the exact same thing. God has dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. We have hours that he has given us that we don't even know where they ended up. We've been conformed to the pattern of American religion thinking that keeping the Sabbath means going to church once every so often. And then complaining about it when we do go. Because our preferences were not met. This is not just us. This is nationwide. Hopefully you understand that. I'm not picking on you. This is a problem in the way that we are thinking. The way that we are teaching the next generations to grow up and to begin thinking. And one day they too, if untaught, if unknowledgeable, will end up like those people on the street in the video, not knowing what year their own country was formed, who fought in the Civil War, or who was the current president. So we must teach this. More importantly, we should model this. 
and encourage you as a challenge this week, plan out your day. Every hour of every day. Account for it. And do the math and say, am I neglecting the temple of the Lord? Because if you spend an hour in the gym every day and zero minutes praying or reading the Bible every day, you are a whitewashed tomb, fancy on the outside and dead on the inside. So if you have an hour left, where should we give it? To the Lord. And hopefully it should reprioritize and reorient our time. It should enlighten us to how we choose to use it. So friends, this week, keep the Sabbath. A tithe of time. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Explore what that looks like for you this week. To really do and pursue the all. Do not neglect the house of our God. Be separate from the world and be ready to take a stand on it. Live the life of the new creation in Christ. Put off the old self. Walk in the new. And finally, make the best use of the time. Make the best use of the time. Again, as a personal encouragement, I hope you make a post-it note for this next week and compare it to your results today. Where did your time go? Are you honoring God with it? Or are we neglecting the house of our God? See, it's not finances or time. It's not talent or treasure. It's all. It's both. It's everything or it's nothing. Fortunately, despite our failures, despite our lawlessness, God has made a way for us. I don't invite, before I want to invite everyone up to the table this morning to receive communion, I first want to give us a few short moments to give you and your heart a chance to reflect and repent. To let the Holy Spirit call out and convict or encourage and build up the things that you are doing. I don't want to leave this message without saying how proud I am of our church. Are we perfect? No. Are we better than anyone else? But do we know what we're called to do? So let's be about the work. This last year, year and a half to two years of our church has been an incredibly formative time. In some ways, a reformative time. As God is continuing to mold and shape us into the church that he would have us to look like. And if we're on board with that, it may mean that we look different than other people. Maybe from other churches. And I hope we have a glow about us. That as we leave and we go about our daily walk with Christ in our jobs, in our schools, in our summer camps, that we aren't simply just growing and glowing from a sunburn. But we are radiant because of what God is doing within us. You should be able to hear 
a True Life Church person on the next aisle in Publix. Whoa, 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 whoa. There they are. So I want to encourage us with that. I'm so thankful for where God is leading us, and I encourage you and myself to spend these next few moments in reflection and repentance. And again, let the Holy Spirit call out, convict, and encourage where he will as we do our best now to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. Let's spend some time in prayer.